At Netflix, 500 billion events and 1.3 petabytes of data are ingested by the system every day. This includes video viewing activities, error logs, and performance events. On today's episode, we dive deep into the data pipeline at Netflix and how it evolved from the 1.0 version to the modern 2.0 version. The idea for this show came from a blog post on the Netflix tech blog called The Evolution of Netflix's Data Pipeline. So I encourage you to search for this article and check it out either before or after this episode. And before I get to this episode, I want to take a quick second to explain how the pipeline works, how the evolution has worked. So the 1.0 version had event producers like your device or really any any type of action on Netflix's infrastructure that produces an event that Netflix wants to log and perform analytics on or do some kind of response to. So and every event got produced and put into this event collection and aggregation platform called Chukwa. And Chukwa was kind of this point where the events were stored in Amazon S3 and you could get do MapReduce jobs over all of the events that were stored on S3. So this was very simple. This was the 1.0 data pipeline. Just all the events, all the data on Netflix got thrown into Chukwa on S3, and you could run MapReduce jobs on them. So this was a very batch-oriented event processing system. So as they were going towards the 2.0 version of the data pipeline, they had an intermediate stage where they re-architected to have an additional branch off of this Chukwa event data collection storage system. And this additional branch had Kafka, and Kafka was used with a routing service that they built, and you could do stream processing off of those events. So this was kind of like they just forked this original pipeline that was just doing batch processing. And in the 1.5 version that I'm talking about now, the event collection and ingestion process was kept the same. And they made it so that all the events also were available to do stream processing. So many early episodes of Software Engineering Daily were covering this movement from batch processing to stream processing. And this episode really epitomizes and collects a lot of the discussions that we had in those early episodes into a real evolution of a architecture that has gone from only focusing on batch processing to something where it's really stream processing. So this intermediate stage where they forked the event pipeline to also have stream processing in addition to the batch processing, this was what they called the 1.5 iteration of the pipeline. And then they moved on to the 2.0 version of the pipeline. This was a even more re-architected platform to have more real-time access. And in the episode, we we go through all this. Uh, Stephen Wu is the guest. He works on the Netflix data pipeline. But this 2.0 version, just to give you a quick summary, and again, I encourage you to check out the blog post to have some insight into how this actually works, maybe if you're at your desk right now, and you can take a look. Event producers in this new architecture, they fed directly into Kafka. So they took out this thing called Chukwa that was this event collection platform, and they just decided to have Kafka front everything. So you write all your events to Kafka. And we get into, in this episode, we get into why Netflix started doing that. And then Kafka 
interacts with a routing service that controls the job creation, whether that's a streaming job or a batch job like they originally had Chukwa feeding into. So yeah, we, we get into all this, like how this last pipeline, this last data pipeline works. And, and we also talk about Elasticsearch and different streaming platforms. Stephen Wu is a platform engineer at Netflix. Stephen, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Today we are going to talk about the Netflix Keystone data pipeline. But before we get into that, let's talk more abstractly. Define what the term data pipeline means. All right. So data pipeline for us means that the transfer data from the event producer to data consumption platform, for example, Hive or Hadoop. And also, we also can uh, transfer data to Elasticsearch, where people can just do real-time index query. Or we can transfer data to like Kafka, where people can run stream processing job. So basically, we're responsible to transfer data from source to the destination for people to consume the data. And at Netflix, what are the types of data that are coming through that pipeline? So I think we have all kinds of data from, let's say, user streaming activity. For example, when you play the video, we have like a event say, hey, you start playing video, you pause, you fast forward or move backward, all those kind of user activity. And they also can be like a performance metrics, for example, uh, latency and a core graph. It can also be like a troubleshooting data. Like, for example, when you write a system, you write some troubleshooting events. In case you want to debug some user problem, you can query the data to see what happened. Also, including application log, like error log, you write to the when there's a log error in the application log file, we collect those and also send through a pipeline. And then we can even send to Elasticsearch. You can do a summary and also people can query for those log. So yeah, all kinds of data. The, the data that enters the pipeline is event data. Can you explain how, what defines an event and how is an event formatted? Good question. So basically the data for our data pipeline is just kind of structured data. You have... Although we don't enforce the schema, but most of the data is a structure there. For example, let's say take example of, let's say uh, your, when you play the video, we may have an event that say, hey, user ID is one, two, three. Username is Steven Wu. Which the movie, movie that I played, for example, is, uh, let's say, Shawshank Redemption, or all those kind of structured events where you have field that define. Okay, and so the data pipeline is responsible for collecting and aggregating and processing and moving around all the the data for these events. And almost every application at Netflix uses the data pipeline. The Keystone data pipeline went live in 2015, but there's been a data pipeline for a long time. What did the data pipeline look like before the Keystone data pipeline? Yeah, that's a good question. So actually, before that, I also want to clarify one your previous question about what flows through our data pipeline. So one thing that doesn't flow through our data pipeline is a is a metric system. So in Netflix, traditionally the business event and the metric system are two separate systems. So our metric flows through our what we call the Atlas, which is also open source. So those numerical metrics doesn't flow our data pipeline. So back to your question about uh, what existed before our Keystone. So Netflix data pipeline experienced like a, a few major evolution in the last few years. At the beginning, our data pipeline is called the Chakwa pipeline, which is Apache project. So the Chakwa pipeline at that time is very simple. 
we just from the event producer they send data to Chakwa. Chakwa then collect them, aggregate them, then upload the data to Hive. So that's it. That's all the data bank we have. So all our data analytic tool is in Hadoop or Hive mm -hmm. query. So that's what we have before. So over the last few years, with the emergency of like Kafka and Elasticsearch, there's a growing demand of real-time analytics. So because in Hadoop is batch processing, people run their data analytic job every hour or every day. So with those like Kafka and Elasticsearch, people starting to wonder, can I get more real-time? So that's why we started from Chakwa, we start to teach traffic to a real-time branch, which is powered by Kafka. And then we, we run our routing service, take data from Kafka to Elasticsearch, or people can just run stream processing to the Kafka in the real-time branch. So that, so we call that the Chakwa 1.0, that the Chakwa with the real-time branch 1.5. So now our keystone is a 2.0. Basically, we have everything is powered by Kafka in the front. Right. So like you said, the original data pipeline was basically for aggregating and uploading these events just for Hadoop batch processing. And that data pipeline was pretty straightforward. The events got collected and written to S3 and Hadoop jobs ran over them. And obviously, like you said, there's the real-time increase in use cases that you had that, that led to the migration of the 2.0 data pipeline. But aside from the real-time augmentation that you added, were there any problems with the original data pipeline? That's a good question. So that's a, a couple of additional motivation for us to make the architecture change. One is that the chakra pipeline doesn't have replication. So if we lose the node and the data haven't been uploaded to S3, the data is lost. So it doesn't have replication. And second motivation is that uh, when we have the real-time branch and the Chakwa system, our architecture gets pretty complicated. We have a lot of moving pieces that make it complicated to maintain and to support because there are just so many more components to involve. With Keystone, we just have two pieces. One is Kafka in the front. Second piece is our routing service. Basically, take the data from the front in Kafka and write them to the destination, which could be a Hive, could be Elasticsearch, or there could be another Kafka. So we're trying to simplify the art, our architecture also. Okay, great. So let's start to talk about that real-time augmentation. Over time, there was this increased demand for real-time analytics at Netflix. Real-time, in this case, means less than a minute. So something happens, and then you want feedback on that event in less than a minute. What is a use case where this type of real-time analytics would be needed at Netflix? Okay, yeah, good question. For example, when user calls our like, customer support, say, hey, I cannot play a video. So then we have internally have a tool which will say, hey, what, which video this user played before and what's the error code? So those data you be put in high to get that user information about the particular user is very, very, very slow because you need to basically scan the whole hour of data if you know which hour that the user will use the video. Which is very slow. But if we put the data in, into Elasticsearch, that pinpoint query is very fast. We can just, in, within a second, we can just get the, the viewing activity pool for a particular user. That can make the, then the customer service can just look into the wing and uh, it can help us troubleshooting much faster. Sure. That's one and example. Yeah. Right. Okay. Sure. And there's I'm, there's plenty other real time use cases, I'm, I'm sure. But so the initial 
way that you got real time going was you augmented that original Chukwa pipeline. So what were the augmentations? What did you so the, so the original pipeline just for for listeners who don't really know is like event event producers feed into Chukwa, which is I guess this kind of event store. And then it gets stored in S3, and then MapReduce jobs, uh, Hadoop jobs can run over S3. And then you augmented this pipeline with a pipeline that would allow for for the real-time functionality. So what was the augmentation to that original Chukwa pipeline? So basically in the Chukwa, in addition to upload data to S3, we also tee the traffic to a Kafka, which is basically the real-time branch. We basically tee the traffic to Kafka. Then go from there, we build up the routing service, take from Kafka and feed to search, or feed. then people can run stream processing on top of that the Kafka. Right. So what were the what were the kinds of applications? I mean so so the real time added functionality that you gave to the old pipeline, you, you sent event data from Chakwa to Kafka. So you you forked it like you said, and then Kafka would send that data to Spark consumers or to other consumers that were reading off of off of that Kafka stream, whether it was the, to the router that went to Elasticsearch or just Kafka feeding directly into stream consumers like Spark. So what were the kinds of applications that were starting to consume this real-time data off of Kafka using Spark or Mantis or any of these other uh, streaming consumers? Oh, that's a good question. So, for example, you know, like a security team, they run a Spark job to consume from the Kafka to do the distributed enough service attack detection. So they need a real time to, to train their model and to react fast. That's one example. Okay, all right, sure. And what about the Elasticsearch? Because you also got Elasticsearch out of this real-time augmentation. Mm-hmm. What do you use Elasticsearch for? Oh, so Elasticsearch actually has been tremendous popular in Netflix. So I think right now we have like a probably more than 3,000 Elasticsearch nodes deployed in Netflix. I gave you an example before is that um, basically people want data in Elasticsearch so they can do a fast query of the data. Instead of Hive, you have to scan a whole hour of data to Elasticsearch because indexing capability, you can just do a very fast, hey, I want this information. Mm-hmm. Elasticsearch, can, Elasticsearch can respond to you much quicker. Uh, okay, so so the fast querying is allowed because uh, Elasticsearch just indexes everything as soon as it comes in. Yes, exactly. So that's why it becomes so popular. People can get the response very quickly in terms of mm. just in terms of a few seconds. Very interesting. I feel like Elasticsearch has really grown in popularity over the last uh, maybe two or three years. Do you think that's accurate? Yes, I think in Netflix, it'd be tremendously popular. We have, as I said, we have like 3,000 Elasticsearch clusters, uh, Elasticsearch node deployed in AWS and uh, probably like dozens of clusters. Why has it gotten so popular in more recent years? I think it's just because they get what they want fast. Yeah. Instead, of you scan the data. Was there some something that was preventing it from getting popular before then? Because, I mean, getting data fast because I've indexed it seems like something I would have wanted even three years ago. Well, I think Elasticsearch they really become mature probably just three years ago. That's what months and they, they really start uh. to take off and become feature-wise, stability-wise, scalability. They really become mature, I think, started from three years ago. Okay. So like like you said, you know, off of Chukwa, you had this Kafka cluster, and then that fed into the stream consumers. Then it also fed into this routing service, and the routing service would feed into Elasticsearch. So what is the responsibility of that routing service? So 
the reason we first of all tee the traffic to Kafka because that kind of give us a buffer. So in case let's say Elasticsearch is down, we have the data uh, can buffer in Kafka because Chakwar is a stateless. It doesn't buffer anything. It get data, it just push data out as fast as possible. So Kafka give us the, the buffer. Then our routing service based instead with for example instead of from Chakwar you feed to Elasticsearch directly. So the downside is that if Elasticsearch is is down then you have no way to put the data to Elasticsearch. But with the Kafka, if Elasticsearch is down, let's say for maintenance purpose, Kafka can give us a buffer that we can still replay the data, feed the data into Elasticsearch when it's back. So our routing service basically in the middle is basically take the consumer data from Kafka and then produce the data to a particular data sink, which can be Elasticsearch, can be Kafka, another Kafka. So basically it's a kind of like a real data relay service. Right. Okay. So, what were the problems with that routing service? So, in our uh, the one point five, the Chakwa with the Kafka real time branch, we implement our own routing service. Basically, it's using the Kafka high level consumer, which had, and then we build like a kind of custom application. So, that's a, a common problem with this approach. One is that, um, first of all, the Kafka O eight. High level consumer uses Zookeeper to do the coordination, to do the partition assignment. It's not as stable as we want. Sometimes the routing service is running fine for a few days, and suddenly they get in a state that it just doesn't consume anything, or it just, it just doesn't consume some partition. So the stability of the O8 consumer is, is not as stable as we want. Second is because our routing job, we have like hundreds of routing jobs, and we manually manage them by creating like dozens of uh, uh, clusters and each cluster, for example, take maybe like 10, eight routing jobs. So that management of that uh, hundreds of routing jobs manually and using the traditional app, it's become very cumbersome. It's uh, created a lot of overhead for us in terms of operations. Eventually, you decided to revamp that entire data pipeline architecture into a Kafka-fronted architecture. So instead of this 1.5 version where events were being collected into Chakwa, they would go straight into Kafka. So the ingestion layer was Kafka rather than Chakwa. Why did you decide to do that? Yeah, so that, that's exactly what's happening because we want to get rid of Chakwa because that's one less system to maintain. And also, Chakwa is, is not really taking off in the open source community. Uh, not many people are using it. And Kafka has a strong momentum. And they have a very vibrant community. So we like to just onboard to that uh, momentum and to, to, get on, to get on with that um, the open source product that everybody likes to use. And so get rid of Chakwa. Functionality-wise, both Chakwa and Kafka has some overlap. Not exactly the same, but they have some overlap. So we can achieve what we do just with Kafka without, we can get rid of one component to maintain. So that's one big reason, just to simplify the architecture and get rid of the one thing, yeah. So it's, it is so interesting how much momentum Kafka has gathered over uh, recent years. And it also seems like one of the few areas of the Hadoop ecosystem. Well, it seems like one of the few areas of the Hadoop ecosystem where there's really been a lot of consolidation. Just people are using Kafka for that for its use case. Why do you think Kafka was so successful over the other queuing systems? Uh, that's a good question. I think performance is a key. 
because it it doesn't have a lot of feature. It's kind of just a transaction. It's just a log service. So it's it's very simple and it's very fast. I think that's the big reason. For example, in Netflix, we transfer let's say one, I think one petab over one petabyte of data every day. So performance is very critical. So Kafka is really high performance. And second, I think it does support the critical feature pops up, which is important for us because the same day topic, we can have multiple routing job to consume from the same topic. So that the pops up is also very important for people. And it also, if you talk about using Kafka as a message queue, it does give you the ordering when the data is in the same partition. So I think the right balance of performance and feature-wise, I think made make it pretty attractive. It's not too complicated, too complicated to make it slow, but it's also good enough to, to satisfy a lot of use cases. Right. And in this particular use case, Kafka offer, uh, I mean, Kafka also has replication. So that gave you some durability that you did not necessarily have at the Chukwa event ingestion version in the 1.5 or the 1.0 version of the data pipeline. Explain how the replication of Kafka improved things at the ingestion layer. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. So we actually started using Kafka 0.7, which doesn't have a replication. So at that time, we only used Kafka in the real-time branch, which is a kind of, it's a, I won't say the toy system, but it's kind of non-production quality. People can just play with it. Since they introduced the replication in 08, that's when we started to make it consider, hey, is Kafka ready to take over our entire pipeline? So, yeah, so support of replication is definitely is a deciding factor for us to move to Kafka. Okay, great. So, the new architecture of Keystone, it has all of the event producers writing into Kafka, like we said, in the, in the 2.0 version. And Kafka sits in something called the control plane. In the control plane, Kafka interacts with that routing service. So give me an idea of what the purpose of the control plane is. Okay. So our main system is that Kafka is for injection and the routing service. We run our routing service. I probably haven't mentioned this earlier. So we implement our routing service using Samza on top of a Docker container. But we, So the control plane is basically is a routing job manager, which kind of deploys a Docker container in our computing resource. So our control by control plane, we mean those job management. It's not about the Kafka and the router as a control plane. It's just control plane is about the managing those routing jobs. Ah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So the control plane is useful for data ingestion and data buffering and data routing. Let's go through each of these. The, the Kafka ingestion layer of Keystone has two ways of writing data to Kafka at the entry point. You can use a Java library to write directly to Kafka, or you can send an HTTP proxy that then writes to Kafka. Why is it useful to have two different ways of ingesting events in Kafka? So traditionally, Netflix is a Java shop. Almost every application is written in Java. So since last one or two years, that started being more polyglot system. Some application is written in Python, some application is written in Node.js. So for us to maintain a library in every language, it's become uh, too much to handle. So we then we just decide to support a REST endpoint, 
because any language have really good support to Rust mm -hmm. uh, service. So we just say, hey, I deploy a Rust endpoint. You can publish your data to that Rust endpoint. So that's our way kind of support the polyglot system environment. So Kafka is useful as a data buffer, and Kafka can also help deal with downstream outages. Explain why Kafka adds some resilience against these types of outages. That's a good question. So I think from time to time, we have experienced S3 outage, for example, for let's say a few hours, S3 just is really slow or it's even complete outage. If that happens, if we have the Kafka as a buffer, during those a few hours, we have data buffered in Kafka. So when the S3 comes back, we can still consume the data from Kafka and upload them to S3. So that's how what we mean by we can absorb the outage. Which happen what happens more often is Elasticsearch. For example, we have very big Elasticsearch deployment. Sometimes if the Elasticsearch is under provision and it becomes slow, or sometimes they have uh, they want to maintenance, they want to shut down the Elasticsearch and bring them back again. So with the Kafka in the in the front, we can absorb those kind of transit problem without losing any data. So what what's the retention policy for your Kafka messages? Depend on the priority of the data. We usually for like a regular priority, normal priority, we keep the retention at eight hours. For high priority, we keep data at twenty four hours. Okay. So from the control plane, data can be routed to the S3 Hadoop MapReduce channel, or data can be sent to Elasticsearch, or data can be sent to a different Kafka stream, which feeds streaming consumers like Spark. And this method of routing, like you said, uses SAMSA on top of a Docker container and My MySQL. So explain how this works. So first of all, by control plane, I didn't mean the a Kafka or the routing service. By control plan, I mean that uh, it's uh, managing those routing jobs. So it's not about the Kafka or routing service itself. It's uh, just, uh, okay. It's okay. the coordination manager of those routing jobs. Oh, okay. Okay, interesting. So can can you tell me how that works, how that job management service works? Okay. So when we first started, we were hoping to run our Docker job, Docker container on top of our internal container service called the Titan. Right, right now, it's called renamed called Titus. So, um, but the, when we started with the Titan project, started a little bit before us. But when we are ready to go, they are not as stable as what we want. So, what we did is that instead of rely on Titan to do the more sophisticated resource management rebalance, we just implement our own simple way of routing assignment. Basically, we have a routing manager just look at the traffic and calculate. Okay, per container, how many partition can each container handle based on traffic volume? Then we assign the job uh, statically to a, a instance. So we have a relative static assignment. So it's everything relative static is not as efficient or as dynamic as what we want. So right now we're working with, but when we study, it's not ready. So right now we're working with our Titus team to think about how to how to migrate to their platform. Then we can, that will remove us to uh, from a lot of those like uh, management work. So basically, we are, we are built on, we want to migrate our routing service on top of the Titus framework. Can you explain why you would use SAMSA for the routing service? So when we first started evaluating the stream process, oh, the title of my previous comment about, in our previous routing job, we write our own custom application. We manually assign them using config file. 
that become very high overhead in the management. So we want to use some more container job and then run it on top on top of some container service that can make our job management much easier. Okay. So is was there anything particular about SAMHSA that made it well suited for this job? Yeah, so the, so evaluate the stream processing system at that time we compared SAMHSA with Spark. So at that time, I think that's in probably April 2015. At that time, Spark doesn't have backpatch handling. Means that uh, when you write to a destination, cannot keep up. You may all they will just uh, drop the data. There's no backpatch handling all those things. At that time, also we when we do performance testing, Samza is much more high performance compared to Spark. Obviously, over last couple last year or so, Spark made made a lot of progress, but at that time, Spark was just not ready. Okay, I see. So. Could you talk in more detail about how you use Docker and why, so why do you spin up a new container for each job? So because our each of our routing jobs, we assign, for example, we basically want to, container can give us a good like job management capability. Instead of our manually assign the thing to a particular instance, we just, hey, here's one job which handle 100 megabytes of data and we give it one CPU. So those make our job management so much easier and clean. We just say, here's the resource we want for this job, and then you figure out the assignment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so the stream processing at Netflix, you know, one of the, like you said, one of the consumers of the Kafka ingestion layer and the routing service and the control plane, one of the ingestion layers is these stream consumers, like Spark and Mantis and other applications. Could you talk about Spark versus Mantis. I I actually have never heard of Mantis, but I'd love to know about these two different ways of consuming data and and doing stream processing. Sure. Actually, stream processing in general is a very young field. There's a lot of new systems come up every year. For example, right now, we're actually evaluating Flink, Apache Flink. So, but Mantis, just give a couple more words about Mantis. Mantis is a stream processing framework that building Netflix internally. It's primarily used by our edge team for like operation insight to say, hey, do we have like a stream outage? Is any like a, can we, they use it to detect is any title have like a playback problem? People cannot play a particular movie or particular TV series. So they use that to detect all those kind of things. So it, I don't think it's open source yet. We, I think that the edge team did give some talk in QCon, all those kind of conferences, but I don't think it's open source yet. It's just another stream processing framework built on top of RxJava, the reactive framework. So, yeah, it's just yet another stream processing framework. <laughs> Why are there so many of these? Like, okay, you're evaluating Flink. That's great. And all of a sudden now Apex has, Apache Apex has come out recently, I saw, and I should probably do a show on that. But what's your perspective on why there are so many of these stream processing frameworks? From my point of view, I think it's just because it's so young. It's a young area. No, it says no player has said, hey, I have everything everybody needs. Mm-hmm. For example, in Mantis, the reason we started is because none of the stream processing framework outside Netflix, outside out there have auto-scaling. So for the Mantis, they build auto-scaling in the AWS. So that is very important for them. That can save us a lot of money. So just from different perspective, since it began, like Samza, when they started, they 
tied very close with Kafka. So they at that, they, when they start, they have pretty good integration with Kafka and more mm-hmm. stable. Uh, so yeah, I think just because it's a new area, that different people come from different perspective. They kind of focus on different area. Hopefully within a year or so, there's one or two will emerge as a kind of domination and everybody can just get on with it. Wasn't that just supposed to be Spark? I don't know. I think right now, well, we'll see. I think uh, I, I cannot make the prediction. We'll see how things <laughs> shake out. What are, what's appealing about Flink when you guys are looking at it? I think the same appealing to us is that Flink has a, I don't know if you heard about Apache Beam or not, which is a Google Dataflow. It's mm-hmm. a stream processing API. So we kind of like the idea have a Beam as an API layer. Then we can, underneath, we can run the stream processing over any system, for example, Flink or Mantis. So we kind of like that abstraction of Beam. And uh, Apache Flink have the best, better support of Beam API as far as we know. So I think that's one of the reasons. And also it have a, it actually have a pretty good company behind it. So just a couple, they have a company behind it. So a good company and the foundation behind the uh, framework is kind of can go a long way. Absolutely. Could you talk more about that Beam API? So Beam API is a, so Google have the paper called the Dataflow, which is describe how they do the stream processing in Google. And Beam is open source project that Google started to define the stream processing kind of just abstract API layer. It's just an abstraction. It doesn't determine how you run the job. Okay, I get it. So you can run the Beam over Flink Runner. You can run the Beam over, let's say, uh, Spark Runner or Mantis Runner if you want. What is the abstraction that it presents that's so flexible that it can be consumed by Spark or Flink or any of these things? So I'm not very familiar with that okay. in terms of API, right? but I think it, it have all the window. It also have a distinct definition of event time and uh, processing time, but I'm not very familiar with all those details. So when you look at these different stream processing frameworks, when you're looking at them from the point of view of being at Netflix, I imagine that there are unique stream processing needs at Netflix and I'm curious how that matches up with the different stream processing tools that are available. So c- could you give me some color on that? Like what are the unique stream processing needs at Netflix and how do those match up against particular stream processing tools? So that's a good question. So take an example, our routing service, right now uses SAMS as stream processing. So, but for our routing service, we don't need, it's a really, actually pretty simple thing. It get the data in, maybe do some filtering, transformation, projection, then write data out. It doesn't do like machine learning, doesn't do all those statistic calculations. So for that, like routing service, we need something stream processing that high performance, have back pressure. Those are important things for us. On the other hand, for example, if you are a data scientist, you may, Spark might give you this like machine learning integration support that uh, Mantis doesn't have, for example. So, or like for us, we don't care, like for our routing service, we don't care about machine learning support. We don't need it. So, so it just depends on your use case. In Netflix, yeah, we run stream processing as a simple routing service. Some data scientists, they run Spark job to do machine learning. And, or like a security team, they run Spark job to do the anomaly detection for the, uh, for the uh, DDoS tech. So yeah, depends on your 
requirement, you may care about different things for stream processing features. It's very interesting. I, so I know you said you you think that maybe there'll be one or two that kind of win out, but do you think that there is maybe a potential future where it's like stream processing layers are like the new database where like, you know, we, you have Cassandra that's useful in some situations or Mongo in some situations, MySQL in some situations. There's no one size fits all, right? Like, do you think that could be the case with streaming? Yeah, I think that could be. I think you probably won't have one thing that take off, but we, you probably will maybe have two or three, for example, you become really popular. But you won't, I think today you probably have, I don't know, six, seven, eight, <laughs> probably and more may come out who knows <laughs> okay so let's talk about monitoring how do you monitor the data pipeline at netflix so that's a good question so as i mentioned earlier our metric system doesn't for our data pipeline so we rely on atlas which is our metric system to do monitoring so we report the metrics and that doesn't go to our pipeline so it's a separate system so that's how we publish metric we set up alerting. We also use um, Winston, which is our internal automation framework. We try to automate like alert handling. For example, when we have alert, hey, you have disk failure. So we can automate the, we don't have the manual to do anything. In our alert action, we can say, hey, just terminate the instance automatically. So that can reduce a lot of our manual work on in terms of monitoring operation. So yeah, so metrics is a key. We have to have a good set of metrics and set up proper alert and automation. So yeah, this automation engine called Winston that handles the monitoring and alerting and actually takes actions on those alerts. This sounds like the no-ops philosophy that I've read about associated with Netflix. It, would you think that say it's an accurate characterization? Uh, yes, so but we are not complete no-op yet. There's still some thing we still do manually, but we're trying to get more and more. But we need to kind of, uh, first of all, we have to have confidence that that automated action is the proper thing. Sometimes we may need, but still we're not confident, hey, is that always right? If we're not totally sure, we'll still get human involved. But human involved always have a higher latency. Certainly. And how does that so when you do something huge, like migrate the entire data pipeline to a new version, I imagine that you want to have a significant amount of human supervision over the updated system after you change to the system. So how, do you, how does that process of moving from a highly human-controlled system, how do you go from that to an increasingly automated system? So if you're asking about the migration from Chakwa to Keystone, is that the question? Yeah, well, it's, it was a bad question. It was a poorly formed question. But I'm just saying, like, when you migrate something that's so big, that has such a significant effect on the infrastructure, and sure, you want to have this no-ops philosophy, but it seems like if you go, if you do something that the integrity of the platform is so dependent on, it seems like you would want a lot of manual oversight in place, at least at first. Obviously, you want some automation, but... You want a lot of automation and you want a lot of manual oversight. And then it seems like gradually you would want to have less humans in the loop and increasingly automate those humans. I don't know. Maybe you could just tell me about the procedure of setting up the automation around the Keystone pipeline. Sure. So I think let me talk about the migration. Actually, so when we migrate Chakwa to Keystone, it's not like a one-time. 
one day we just <laughs> we flip switch. So what we actually did is that from producer, we do the shadowing. Basically, we write same traffic to the old pipeline, charcoal pipeline, and to the Keystone pipeline. So we run both pipeline at the same time, and then we write the data to the high. So we have both high run available. We have our production high, and then we have our shadow high. So after we have both pipeline running, we also do the data comparison. So make sure the data they are identical in the hive table, in the production hive and the shadow hive. So we do the shadowing and do the data validation. Once we, after we run those dual pipeline for months, and we we iron out all the bugs issues with the data quality thing, then a month later that's when we did the switch. So actually, I can give tell you a good story. When two days after we switched to Keystone, we had a big outage. Which like lasted for ten hours. It's fortunate thing is that we still have a charcoal pipeline running. So at that time we just switched that. We then we basically we just uh restore the data from the charcoal pipeline. So we don't lose anything. Unfortunate things happen is because it just happened two days after cutover. So that was the best thing. Ah. So can you tell me more about the automation though? I know I asked that question really poorly, but like. Tell me what kinds of automation hooks you would put in place around Keystone to handle failures. Like, for example, you monitor the Kafka brokers and the Kafka consumers in detail. Talk about how you set up automation around those Kafka brokers and consumers. So basically, it's just uh, like a metrics. We just, hey, we like a publishing metric for each broker. They can find out hey, which how many partitions is out of sync for that broker. We publish those metrics. We can also publish, let's say, Disk utilization, CPU utilization, all those, all those important things. Then we basically set up a learning based on threshold. Okay, that makes sense. And then we can once we that's first is, is detecting things happen. Then it's the handling of the problem. Handling of the problem, you can pay. We can pay you the on call, which can manually handle it. Or if we know, for human, when we get a page, usually it goes through a few like diagnostic steps. Hey, is this happening? No. How about this? No. Next one. So you usually have a kind of one book type of step you you normally follow. If that step is well defined, and then we try to scriptize it, and then automate that handling using a script. If that script, if something that script can handle, then we just then we probably just raise it to the uncle. Hey, I don't know what's happening. Take a look. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So you start off with you know you have a, an ops guy who's overseeing a guy or girl who's overseeing the troubleshooting process, and then. Over time, the ops person writes writes down what's going on or the procedure for handling a problem. And then once you have the human procedure written down, it becomes easy to script that and automate it and put it into code. And then, then you can always escalate after running those well-defined checks, escalate it back to the ops person if those don't work. Exactly. So basically, we learn, then we scriptize, then we improve. Fascinating. So I'm sure that the Netflix team was looking at cost management when building Keystone. What are the types of infrastructure decisions that were made around managing cost? So that's a very good question. So I think the key thing for us, for our team, is give the users the visibility. For example, I think a study from January this year, we started to tell team or, or like other engineer team, hey, you send so much data to a data pipeline that is equivalent to how the amount of dollar every year. 
So after we expose that visibility, people, they send our data, they don't know how much it costs. They have no idea. They say, hey, I give it to you, you deliver, great. But uh, as infrastructure, we handle like a one terabyte of data every day. So that's a huge infrastructure. It's a, it's a very high cost uh, system. And after we did the cost attribution to the engineer team, then they start to realize how expensive it is. They start to optimization. So immediately after the new year, we actually reached 1 trillion events per day. And after we did the cost attribution, give the visibility to the engineer team, they start to realize how expensive it is. They did the optimization. For one example is that one team, they send like a 4 million events per second to us, which is one of the most, it's a heaviest traffic in terms of message per second. So after we exposed that cost to them, they did the optimization, start to batch in the events. They reduced the number of matches from 4 million to like less than 100,000 K, less than 100 K per second. That's like a, a few hundred X of re reduction in terms of number of messages. Yeah, so the visibility exposure is a key. In Netflix, we don't try to dictate, hey, you can only spend so much money. We don't yeah. do that, but we give you the visibility, give you the tool, then they can make the decision themselves. Do they want to spend their resource to optimize this? Or they think, hey, I have more important things to do. We don't dictate people what to do, but we do give people the, try to give people the tool and the visibility. That makes a lot of sense. You just display the PNL to each of these well-defined teams at Netflix, since Netflix does have well-defined small teams, as, as I understand. Yes. And they see their PNL and they can choose to audit themselves when they want to. So we like uh, always promote freedom and responsibility. So each engineer team have the freedom, but they also have the responsibility. We hire mature engineers, they all make kind of a reasonable trade-off decision, but we don't, we don't dictate, we try to provide the context for people. Let's zoom out. What is the developer experience like for interacting with Keystone? Is it, is it like self-service or do I need to contact the Keystone team to help me get set up if I'm a team in Netflix? That's a very good question. So when we first started, we let the contact is a spreadsheet. People feel in a role in the spreadsheet. Hey, I want to send data, I want to send data to this topic and this is my traffic estimation. Then we manually provision that. We're working on our self-serving model. So we can build the UI. People can just go there, provision their stream based on their traffic. Yes, so we definitely want to go to self-serving. That is our manually provision of those stream is a, is a big burden for us. Our on-core has to spend a lot of time to just to handle, to manually provision those, those uh, data stream and all the infrastructure. So yes, self-serving tool is something we want to we want to automate that. So that's definitely one something we want to do. We are not there yet. We are started. We already make a few baby steps, but uh, hopefully by end of this year, we can make it fully automated and self-serving. Okay, wonderful. So what is in the future for the Netflix data pipeline? That's a good question. I think we touched on a couple of things earlier. One is that um, self-serving that you just asked earlier. We want to move from manual provision the model to self-serving model. So that can relieve us to a lot of manual work. Second is, something uh, you mentioned about um, automation. So we already did, we did a lot of automation, but uh, our ultimate goal is 
I won't say 100%, but close to 100% automation. So that need to build a lot of intelligence in our control plane. We need to, not scripting may not be enough. We may need to write some, I won't say it's AI, but we need to be more sophisticated than scripting and more intelligent and more. So that's something we will invest heavily in the next year or so, trying to relieve us from all the manual work. Third thing we're trying to look into is um, stream processing. So once we have the pipeline that the fronting by Kafka, so that's a growing uh, demand of stream processing in Netflix. We have people have been doing their own. They have been running their own Spark job. They have running their own Mantis job. So from our data pipeline point of view, we're trying to build a common framework so that the people people don't have to run those system themselves. We can we we run the infrastructure for people. People can just write write their stream processing job on top of our platform. For example, using the Beam, Apache Beam API. Underneath it can be Mantis, can be Flink, can be anything. For example, maybe two years down the road or one year later, that's super awesome stream processing framework come out. <laughs> then we can just switch that, and the people don't have to. So we try to build up that stream processing platform inside Netflix. That's great. Okay, cool. Well, Stephen, thanks for coming on this show. This has been a really great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. Sure. Thank you for having me. 